Welcome to How Backers, episode 53. If you're a parent or hoping to become one, listen up. Today's special guest brings us a truly unique mix of expertise and experience. Dr. Nicole Birkins is described as one of the only clinical psychologists in the world with advanced degrees in nutrition and special education. She's also a mother of four, an award-winning therapist, a published researcher, international consultant, author of two books, and somehow still has time to lead a team of clinicians at her treatment clinic in Michigan. For more than 20 years, Dr. Birkins has focused her career on helping families get to the root of their children's behavior, attention, anxiety, or mood disorders sometimes where other specialists have failed. She takes a multidisciplinary approach using nutrition, lifestyle and communication techniques. In this episode, Dr. Birkins will be sharing her insights on increases in childhood disorders like ADHD, autism and anxiety, how these can be misdiagnosed and where she looks for the root cause. We'll also talk about the topic of the year, COVID-19, and how the virus has and will impact children emotionally and behaviorally. As always, listeners and viewers, anything you hear or see on Health Hackers should not be considered medical or personal advice. You know the score. Always speak to your provider about your concerns. Now, Dr. Birkins, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Excited for this. There's so much I want to talk about. It's been hard to narrow down for this one episode. So let me begin by asking you to lay the foundations a little bit for us here. What are the most common childhood disorders that you see in your clinic and what, what do they look like? Yeah, the biggest symptoms that we see in kids are symptoms of anxiety, behavioral challenges, uh, school and learning related issues, attention and focus issues. These are a lot of the symptoms that parents are seeking help for. Those symptoms can end up being diagnosed as lots of different things. Certainly some of the most common and unfortunately uh, quickly growing diagnoses are things like autism spectrum disorder, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, that ADHD, and we are seeing a major increase in anxiety disorders, especially over the last eight months or so with the pandemic, that is skyrocketing. That's sad to hear. Do you feel the numbers of children dealing with those disorders have increased overall during your 23 years in practice? Absolutely. To put it in some perspective, my very first job was as a special education teacher working with a group of very young children who had been diagnosed with autism. That was in the mid-1990s, and I worked for a large school district at that time. And we had one little classroom of five students in that elementary age group who had been diagnosed. Now, if we fast forward to today, 25 years or so later, the numbers of kids diagnosed with autism spectrum disorder has skyrocketed. Most individual school buildings have programs for kids with autism. That program that I started back in the mid 90s now has grown to many, many classrooms over time. We know that the statistics show that, uh, you know, in the mid 90s, when I started my career, we were talking about one in several hundred children being diagnosed on the autism spectrum. Now we know that it's one in 50 something, and that number actually is less if you are a boy. So just looking at the autism numbers alone, we say, wow, something is really happening here. ADHD, same thing. You know, we're now looking at a situation where right now in the US, um, over 10% of children, school-age children, end up with a diagnosis of ADHD. That just was not something that happened, 
you know, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, certainly earlier than that. And we're seeing that across the board with not only what we would consider mental health or brain-based disorders, but with chronic health problems across the board. Studies show us now that over 54% of children, at least in the United States, have some form of chronic health condition, whether that's a physical health condition like allergies, asthma, diabetes, or a mental health condition like learning disabilities, uh, anxiety, autism, those kinds of things, these numbers are increasing. And it really begs the question of what's going on with that, that we have so many more kids with so many more significant issues. Well, it does beg the question, do you have your own theories on that? Yeah, I mean, when we look at what the research shows, there's a variety of contributing factors. One of the big ones, whether people want to you know, accept it or acknowledge it or not, is just the increasing amount of toxins in the world around us. Children now, from the time they are conceived and in utero all the way up through you know, their adolescent and young adult years, are exposed to toxins in the form of chemicals in our food, um, toxins in the air, in the water supply, all of these things at a rate that we have never before seen in human history. And in many ways, um, we're raising a generation of guinea pigs to see what happens when you put developing brains and bodies in sort of this toxic stew that we've created in our physical environment. So that certainly is one component. And again, there's many pieces to that, right? Then we get into the nutrition piece of not only increasing chemicals in the food that we're eating, but the nutrient density of even whole foods going down over time. So even produce and things, you know, that are grown in, in the earth and we say, well, that's a great thing to eat. Yes, absolutely. But the mineral and overall nutrient content today is much less than it was you know, a generation or two or three ago. So food supply and, you know, nutrition is certainly one of the pieces. We can look at technology. The research points to rapid increases in technology in sort of this 24-7 digitally connected culture that kids are being raised in and the impact that that has on the brain, on development, on mental health, uh, the ways that schools have changed, the busyness of the family unit and changes in you know, how that operates over time. So lots of different pieces. The research is clear that there isn't any one thing that's causing this increase, but it's lots of pieces that we need to look at. And I think that's important in framing our conversation today because so often when we talk about things like mental health or mental illness, which is a term that I don't like, um, or diagnoses for kids or adults. The, the framework is one of there's something wrong with this child or there's something wrong with this person. There's something deficient or defective or ill or wrong about them. And how I really look at it as a holistic child psychologist is that children are just a representation and a mirroring back of their environment and of all of the things going on around them. And I really look at it in my work as there's not something wrong with this child. There may be things about the environment, about lots of things that we can change to help them 
thrive and function better, but really moving away from this view of something being inherently wrong with the person and looking at what might be wrong or what might need changing in all of the pieces around them. I think that's an important distinction. And do you find that your view on the toxins in our environment is an unpopular one that you get pushback on? You know, it's becoming more um, mainstream to think in this way as, you know, 20 years ago, it was sort of like, oh, you know, you're way out in left field. But as we have more research and as we have more of an understanding, even in the realm of physical health conditions, how these kinds of things contribute, it's becoming more common for people to have at least some awareness or some sense that that's an important thing to consider. Is it by any means in the mainstream of how we approach mental health diagnosis and treatment for children and adults? No, but we're moving in that direction. And some of us are really pushing um, to say we need to move beyond just this idea of you know, diagnosis or chemical imbalance or whatever, you know, realms we've been operating in and recognize what the research is showing us here. So it certainly is gaining traction. I saw your post on Instagram that said over 500,000 children under the age of five are prescribed psychiatric drugs every year in America. Would you say medication is now considered the first line of treatment for children? Unfortunately, for many of them, it is. And I say unfortunately for a variety of reasons. Unfortunately, because the research shows us that there are much more effective first-line interventions that we should be using for the vast majority of mental health and brain-based challenges in children. Um, it's also unfortunate because of the growing body of research that we have showing that not only do psychiatric medications have very minimal, if any, benefit for children, teens, and young adults with these challenges, but they carry a wealth of side effects that can create major, major problems. So I am not anti-psychiatry. I am not anti-medication. I am very cautious about how we approach them. I am very much aligned with the idea that they should be an absolute last resort and that we should be focusing on investigating and understanding the root causes of these symptoms in children so that we can actually treat them and address them and not just put a Band-Aid on them with medication that very likely is not going to benefit them in the long term and may cause increasing problem and harms for them. And have you found that some parents have experienced being told, no, your child must take this medication? Yeah, unfortunately, that has become um, sort of the story in mental health. And it's a story that has not been driven by research, but has been driven by pharmaceutical company marketing. There's much that has been written about that for people really interesting and understanding how it is that psychiatric drugs became the mainstay of mental health treatment, um, at least in the United States and, and in Western um, countries overall for these issues. Look at uh, Robert Whitaker's journalistic work. The Anatomy of an Epidemic is a book that I read probably 
10, 11 years ago now that really opened my eyes to the story I had been told and what I had been taught in my graduate work about how all this um, how all this worked with medication. So there are certainly some really good resources out there to understand that. But unfortunately, the mainstream sort of approach or message to parents or to adults seeking treatment for themselves is these symptoms are caused by some kind of chemical imbalance in the brain. And therefore you need to give these drugs to compensate for that. And your child will need to take this medication for the rest of your life. That's the story, which of course works out very, very well for pharmaceutical companies who manufacture these drugs, right? If you get a three-year-old or a five-year-old or even a 10-year-old um, prescribed a medication that they now are told they need to take daily for the rest of their life, that works out very well from a financial perspective. The human cost of that, of course, is not often considered and what the research tells us. And, and I think it's important to focus on the research. This isn't my opinion. If these medications worked, I'd say, great. If they worked well for people and had minimal side effects, fantastic. Let's use them. But the problem is that the research shows that the vast majority of these medications, especially when we look at children, they have not been researched in children. Long-term benefits and side effects have absolutely not been researched in children. And the studies that we have now, even as recently as just last week, a new analysis coming out showing these medications, particularly when we look at antidepressant medications, which are widely prescribed to children, um, don't have efficacy. In fact, very often placebo pills work better. And when we look at even while some people may have an initial symptom reduction, over the period of eight weeks, 12 weeks and longer, there is no difference in symptoms from kids who are taking these medications versus children who aren't. Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't occasionally children and teens who do truly experience some life-changing benefit from them. But the story that's told is that that's what's going to happen for kids. And unfortunately for the vast majority, that is not what happens. And what I see in my clinic then are families coming in with their children who maybe started with attention problems or anxiety issues or you know, some behavioral issues. And over the course of months and years were placed on medication after medication and more medications and cocktails of medications. And now their child is more dysfunctional than ever before. And they're coming in and they're saying, what do we do? Their prescribers don't have anything left to offer. Uh, we don't know where to turn. We don't know what to do. And now their children have all of these additional symptoms and problems from the medications. And so unwinding that is a really, um, challenging. It's a doable, but it's a challenging process. And it starts with parents being uh, willing to understand and to learn that the story they've been told about, oh, your child's not focusing in school. Here's their prescription for Ritalin. Oh, your child is, is sad or, you know, anxious. Here's their prescription for Prozac. Oh, your child is having, you know, more tantrums a day than you want to deal with. Here's your prescription for an antipsychotic medication. That that story that they've been told is not a true story, or at least it's not a complete story. 
and that there are other things that they need to be looking at there to really understand what's actually going on for their child. And then how do we start to support that child in the ways that they really need support? And, and that requires not just working with the child, that requires working with the family and working um, specifically with the parents. Yes, let's talk about that. So what is your first line of treatment for the children whose parents come to see you for help? Yeah. The first and most important step I have found is to just create um, a safe place where parents can understand and learn what's going on with their child. That's the first step because so often they have not received good information about why it is that the child is having these issues. So providing education about here's the variety of things that could be going on. Here's the things we need to look into. And then the other big component of that first step is providing support to the parents and the family unit to reduce stress for them to feel like, okay, we have a process here. This is going to get better. Um, how can we reduce stress? How can we focus, uh, shift away from focusing on the negative all the time? How can we start to shift some things in a positive direction and just start feeling better about our child again, quite frankly, looking at the good in our child, looking at the good in ourselves and recognizing this is not a flaw in us as parents, um, that there are underlying reasons here that we can get to the root of and that we need to start reducing stress and just bringing more joy um, back into uh, the family unit. That's a really important first step for healing. And so then how do you look for the root cause of a behavior disorder? Yeah, there can be many different things going on. Um, so there tend to be some common ones that I look at right away. One of the first steps that we as practitioners need to be doing is taking the time to get a really thorough history of this child. What has gone on for them emotionally? What's gone on for them in school? What is their diet and their nutrition status like? What are their medical health conditions? What are their uh, sleep patterns like? All of these pieces that people say, you know, parents say it to me all the time. They're like, oh, I was coming in to see a psychologist. I didn't realize that you were going to ask about things like my child's sleep and their eating patterns and their bowel movements and those kinds of things. And I explain that while most psychologists probably are not asking about that, they should be, that these are things that we need to understand, even if the, the uh, things that need to be dealt with in the physical realm uh, are not something that we specialize in as mental health professionals, we need to uncover those so that we're referring them to the appropriate medical professionals to have these things looked at. So the first step is really thorough history to understand what are all the components here. And then very often, out of that comes, um, you know, some next steps. So looking at things like lab work, um, if it seems like a child may be really nutrient deficient, or if they're having symptoms that the research shows are connected to nutrient imbalances or food sensitivities, even something as basic as low iron can cause an incredible amount of learning and sleep and behavior issues in children. These are very simple tests that we can have run through children's primary health care. Um, uh, you know, primary health physicians. So looking at those kinds of things. Um, if sleep is an issue, that is something I target right away before I even delve into the specifics of diagnosis or whatever else. A child who is not getting an appropriate amount of good quality sleep is a child whose brain cannot work the way that it needs to. 
So we need to delve into why aren't they sleeping? Is this an issue of supporting parents to get some you know, better routines and sleep hygiene things in place? Is it an issue of correcting some nutrient deficiencies that are causing the sleep problems? Is it that they may have apnea and need a sleep study? Whatever it might be, that's a really core area that I look at because the research is so clear that even a half an hour a night of lost quality sleep for a child can lead to significant behavior and learning and, and mental health problems the following day. Um, and, you know, we have studies now that show that up to 40% of kids diagnosed with ADHD actually have an undiagnosed and untreated sleep problem. That's huge. And when we treat the underlying sleep issue and they're getting the quality sleep that they need for the right amount of time, those symptoms go away. So it's delving into these kinds of things and looking at, okay, where's the low hanging fruit? Are there specific diet changes? Are there supplements that are going to be beneficial? Is there a sleep issue? Is it, you know, a school situation that's not compatible for them that we can make some changes in? So it's those things. And then it's also looking at what's going on in the family unit. What's going on with the parent-child relationship? What tools and strategies can we give parents to understand how to support um, their child more effectively, how to communicate in more effective ways. So it's this multifaceted process of delving into looking at the history, seeing what it seems like is likely to be causing an issue, and then targeting things, you know, in an order of priority based on how problematic it seems to be. On the diet point that you made, uh, when you and I spoke over email, I told you about my teenage anxiety that a couple of practitioners at the time had suspected was linked to my fluctuating blood sugar levels. This led to a major dietary shift for me as a 14-year-old and my family. Could, could you tell us about some of the links you have seen between a child's behavior and their nutrition? I'm so glad you asked that. It's one of my favorite topics to talk about. And I'll, I'll frame it by talking about the evolution of my journey as a psychologist and then getting into the realm of nutrition. Because, you know, I was trained in a very traditional uh, clinical psychology program where we didn't talk about nutrition. We didn't look at any of those things. And but my practice has always been geared around children, particularly children with things like autism, ADHD, um, you know, anxiety, those kinds of things. So as I continued over the years working with children, I began to notice these patterns of, wow, a lot of these kids have really limited diets, really, um, you know, processed diets, really picky eating habits. A lot of them share physical issues like allergies or constipation or chronic ear infections or throat infections. And I began to look at all that and, and that's what got me to delve into the research on what are the connections here? It got to the point where I was like, there has to be more to this picture because I knew I was doing an excellent job utilizing all of the tools that my psychology training and my education training had given me. And these were children by and large who were being seen by psychiatrists and people who are experts in the realm of medication and those types of treatments. And they were getting all these treatments and yet they still weren't significantly improving or they would improve and they would plateau. And that got me really interested in, there has to be more here. And these things can't just be, you know, oh, a coincidence that all of these kids have these problems. And when I started looking at the research on the connection between nutrition and 
brain health, nutrition and mental health. And granted, this was, you know, about 15 years ago now, there's much more now than there was then. But what I was finding, I was um, thrilled to have found this information, what I was thinking, you know, as this is a missing piece. But then I was also frustrated and angry of why is this information not a part of our clinical training? Why aren't we being taught about the connection? Why aren't we being taught to look at this, to ask about this? So that really um, fueled my passion and my interest in nutrition specifically, which is why I went back and got an additional master's degree in that um, and a board certification in that because I feel so strongly about the need to combine those pieces and I wanted to be able to have the appropriate educational training and board certification to be able to use that in my practice. These are things we should be asking everyone about because the links are profound. So you mentioned about blood sugar. That's a really important one to be thinking about for all of us, but particularly for children and teens. So our blood sugar ideally stays stable during the day. We eat in a way that our blood sugar doesn't spike really high and then crash really low and kind of keeps us even keeled. That's how the brain likes it to be. That's what helps to um, have our brain and uh, our body function well. The problem is that most kids now are eating a diet full of processed and sugar and simple carb heavy foods that create these blood sugar spikes right after they eat, which can look behaviorally like hyperactivity, like impulsivity, like anxiety, uh, those kinds, kinds of things. And then the body burns through and the brain burns through that sugar spike pretty quickly. And then they get this crash where now they're lethargic and irritable and sort of have this you know, mood that's fluctuating and going up and down. That's very common. And for kids and adults, especially who have been diagnosed with some of these disorders, whether we're talking about bipolar disorder or anxiety and panic or you know ADHD, whatever it might be, one of the key things nutritionally and, and just treatment-wise that we wanna look at is helping to stabilize those blood sugar levels throughout the day. And it's remarkable what people experience even within a few days to a week to certainly within a few weeks of making those changes as you, know, you observed for yourself um, how different that feels. Most of us are not even in touch with how it would feel for our brain and our body to function with stable blood sugar because we're eating in ways that our blood sugar is on this roller coaster all day. And that's just normal to us. But when parents are willing to look at, okay, let's replace the sugary pastries, breakfast cereals, you know, flavored milks, those kinds of things in the morning with a breakfast that is more nutrient dense, particularly focused on protein and healthy fat, for example, it's remarkable what they will report then in terms of, wow, my child's focus was better. Wow, my child wasn't so you know, irritable and disrespectful. Wow, the teacher is saying you know, they're not um, bouncing off the walls or they're able to get their work done. Those kinds of shifts can have profound differences, especially when we're talking about the brains and bodies of children who are much more sensitive to things like blood sugar fluctuation, uh, you know, to, to these kinds of things. So um, yes, nutrition is key. We have research across the board showing that the quality of diet matters when we as human beings consume more whole foods. 
things like meats and fish and nuts and whole grains and produce, fruits and vegetables, as opposed to a diet high in packaged, processed, sugar and chemical filled foods. The research is very clear that a whole foods, more um, nutrient dense diet supports our mental health. Whether we're talking about depression, whether we're talking about how people do um, post-traumatic brain injury, talking about people with seizures, anxiety, autism, we know that food quality and diet makes a difference. We also know that specific nutrients make a big difference. I mentioned iron earlier. We know that kids diagnosed with ADHD are more likely to be iron deficient, to be vitamin D deficient, to have suboptimal magnesium levels. And that's not just for ADHD. We can look at many of these diagnoses and find studies that support the connection between nutrient levels and nutrition and, uh, and those symptoms. And you know, one of the most interesting areas of research um, that is just exploding right now is research on the microbiome, particularly the gut microbiome, that balance of sort of positive versus uh, negative microorganisms that live in our body and on our body, but particularly that balance in the gut microbiome and how that is connected to mental health in children and adults. And we're finding incredibly strong connections between gut microbiome imbalances and depression and autism and ADHD and bipolar disorder and OCD and all of these things, which just adds further strength to this idea that our physical health, the physical functioning of our bodies, how we're eating, how we're fueling our brain and our body has a tremendous impact on how we feel, how we function, and, and ultimately all of those mental health symptoms that we're dealing with. And when you're looking at a gut microbiome issue among your patients, do you put them on a probiotic, encourage fermented foods? What kind of steps do you take with them? It depends on the child's history. So if I have a child, which is many of them at this point, who have spent you know, a lot of years of their childhood on antibiotic medications for chronic infections, things like that, you know, that tells us right there without doing any testing even that their gut microbiome is going to be imbalanced. If I have a child who has a very heavy processed foods diet, their gut microbiome is imbalanced. So often I will start with some type of, um, you know, microbiome supportive supplement because that is easier than changing a child's diet right out of the gate um, most of the time. So I really like to use, um, a sporebiotic formula, I find that works really well, but there's several you know, typical probiotic formulas too. And sometimes that in and of itself, just getting some of those good microorganisms in there, shifting that balance can make a profound difference. For kids where I suspect there may be chronic infectious issues, yeast overgrowth, those kinds of things creating imbalance, we have some wonderful stool tests now. And the great thing about those is they're not invasive, you know, um, it doesn't require a child going and getting a, a blood draw or something like that. It's just a stool analysis where we can look at that. And I will often, um, you know, do that for kids to just rule out, do we have some kind of chronic infection? Do we have chronic yeast overgrowth? What are the particular um, strains of bacteria and other microorganisms in their system? And what's the balance look like? And, and how can we address that now? Um, one of my favorite 
uh, test. It's a newer one using newer technology. It's called BiomeFX. And it's a great test that anybody can get that gives wonderful analysis of what's going on in that gut microbiome. And then what are the strategies that are gonna be helpful? Um, supplements are one piece of it, but as you mentioned, then shifting away from you know a heavily processed foods diet, looking at getting out um, more of the chemicals and sugars because those are very damaging to the gut microbiome. So you know if I can get a child even as a starting point to start drinking more water and less sugary juice, sports drinks and soda pop, that's a win for them across the board for their mental health. It's a win for their microbiome. If I can get families to start embracing even eating you know a vegetable with dinner, or even, okay, as a starting point, if they're doing fruit snacks with their kids, let's look at the labels. Let's do some that are organic, that don't have as much sugar. Those are starting points um, for that. And then certainly we get into things like fermented foods and those kinds of things as we go along, depending on the child and frankly, depending on the family system and their ability to implement those kinds of things. I, I'm very, uh, very much uh, a realist when it comes to working with human beings. And while there is a lot of attention, especially in the online health world on the extremes of biohacking and all of these specialized diets and all that, and that's wonderful for people who have the energy and resources and interest in doing that. I'm much more pragmatic of most of the people that we're working with and most of the people out there in our communities um, really need to just start with understanding and implementing some basics that they can feel successful with. Um, and so that, that tends to be much more my approach is starting where the family is able to start with um, in terms of some of these changes and providing them education and support with that. Because one of the challenges that I see is families who come in and they maybe have been to see more of an integrative or a functional medicine practitioner prior, and they bring me their stack of tests and their stack of treatment plans, and they say, we were supposed to do all these things, and you know, we, we weren't able to do it. Our treatment plans are only as good as the person, or in this case, when we're talking about kids, the family's ability to implement it. And I think that's where a big piece of my psychology training comes in of understanding family systems and understanding the need for education as a pathway to developing more motivation and all of that, because we can tell families to change their diet 180 degrees, start incorporating fermented foods, you know, do all of these things. But if they don't feel like they can do it, and if they feel overwhelmed, they're going to totally shut down and they're not going to make any changes. So I tend to start depending on where they are and their understanding and their um, you know motivation for things. I tend to start small and give them some good successes up front and then build from there. And among your patients who have a child that just refuses to eat healthy food, just won't eat anything unless it's something processed or sugary, how do you help them? Yeah. That's actually, you know, a challenge that a lot of parents face. Now, what I will say is most of the time that is a problem more on the parents, um, the parent side of things of assuming that this is going to be impossible of dealing with their own anxiety um, and distress about changing it. The vast majority of the time when parents start to put some shifts in place and handle it in a very matter of fact way and slowly, you know, start to shift, kids do really well. There, of course, is a small segment 
of the population of children um, who do have clinical feeding disorders, who that is like picky eating to the extreme. Those children and families do benefit from targeted um, feeding therapy to help address um, you know, issues of texture and you know, sensory processing and anxiety and those kinds of issues. But most of the time, what I uh, you know, work with kids and parents around is, let's start with what seems like a doable starting point. So, okay, like, let's just take chicken nuggets because that's a very common thing that lots of kids who come into my practice want to eat. Most chicken nuggets have very little chicken. They're filled with chemicals and sugars and those kinds of things. So I teach kids and their parents how to read labels. And we say, okay, this is what you're used to now. Let's see if we can find a chicken nugget that's similar, you know, that you still enjoy. It's still a chicken nugget, but that's going to be more supportive for you. So making those lateral shifts, as opposed to saying, you can't have chicken nuggets anymore. Now you can only have, you know, uh, roasted chicken or grilled chicken breast, probably not going to go over well. Same thing with snacks. I find that snacks are a good starting point. Kids like to dip things. So can we find some lateral, you know, shifts there of, okay, this is what you're typically eating. Maybe it's, you know, crackers and whatever. Can we start to read labels and can we find some options that are very similar to that, but are more nutrient dense. So that, that's where, um, that's where I start. And even like with very picky eaters and young kids, juice is a big one. And the reason I target juice is because it is such a um, large um, amount of sugar uh, for kids. Uh, even the quote unquote natural juices, it's just a lot of sugar in them. And when we think about the fact that we want to keep our children uh, at 25 grams of added sugar or less in a day, which may sound like a lot to hear me say that, but when you start reading labels, you realize, oh, that's not a lot. Most kids are at triple that over the course of a day. So things like juice, I will give parents tools like let's slowly start watering it down. You know, so for the first couple days, you just add a splash of water into it. Then for the next few days, you add a little more water to help children's taste buds acclimate to a less sugary kind of um, taste profile, because that's one of the big uh, challenges is that kids are so used to things tasting so sweet and so sugary, even, um, even things like crackers and those kinds of things. Um, they, they are very sweet when they use high fructose corn syrup, when they use, you know, those refined grains. So it's a process of shifting a child's palate over. And when I can help parents see, and even kids themselves see that you can do this in a gradual way. People have this idea in their mind that healthy eating means like foraging for my own, you know, root vegetables in the backyard and eating plain, bland chicken breast and whatever. When we can help expand their ideas of what healthier eating can constitute, um, then that opens a lot of doors. And I say, no, you can eat all of these things. Um, cooking skills is another piece of this though. Um, very often parents, and especially, you know, I do a lot of work with teens and young adults, they, they don't have even basic cooking skills. And, and maybe their parents and grandparents didn't either. So I can use the example of um, just last week, I had a young adult in and she knows that she needs to work on her aversion to vegetables. She has, you know, said, I hate them since I was a kid. But as we talked through the history of that, her experience with vegetables, her mother has never um, cooked. They've done a lot of fast food, a lot of packaged food, those kinds of things. 
Her only real experience with vegetables early on as a child was her grandmother like boiling broccoli and Brussels sprouts to death on the stove and then saying, here's your vegetable. And I told her, nobody likes those vegetables. Let me teach you how to make vegetables that taste delicious. So we went into the kitchen at the clinic and I taught her how to make roasted broccoli. What did we do? We did broccoli, carrots, and some cauliflower because that's what I had. She likes the taste of garlic. I showed her how to season things, how to cook them properly. And she was like, I've never smelled or you know even had a vegetable like this before. And I'm like, right. So when we talk about vegetables, your idea of that was this gross, awful thing that your grandma made you know, 20 years ago, but vegetables are a lot more than that. So I think this is part of all of that education that we need to help our patients and their families with and digging into understanding why they think the way they do about eating and, and all of those things and then helping them shift that. I really want to move on to COVID-19, but I just have a couple more quick questions while we're still sure. talking about nutrition. It's so fascinating. Yeah. Among your patients with ADHD and autism specifically, have you found any specific food or lifestyle interventions that have been successful in improving their life? Absolutely. Shifting away from chemicals and sugars and processed food to a more nutrient-dense diet is the ideal, for sure. The research is clear about it, and it's anecdotally what I see in my practice every day. However, that is a challenge for some people to do, or they just aren't willing to look at that. Some of the specific things that make a big difference food-wise, especially for those two populations of kids, are uh, looking at dairy sensitivity. Gluten is a big piece too for many kids, but I will say, hands down, dairy is the bigger problem for many of the kids that I see on the autism spectrum or with ADHD, particularly if they have the more hyperactive impulsive form of ADHD. Um, kids with behavioral problems in general, I look to um, cow's milk to dairy for them. And often what I find in doing an analysis of what they're eating, very heavy dairy consumption, drinking cow's milk, eating a lot of cheese, yogurt, ice creams, those kinds of things. So if I can even help convince parents to even try for two to three weeks, even reducing dairy or ideally doing a dairy-free diet, often they will see a big, big shift. Doesn't mean that the autism or the ADHD goes away. I don't, I don't want to give that impression, although sometimes with ADHD it can, but it improves things to the point where parents go, okay, now this is something easier to work with, right? If your kid's irritable and tantruming all the time or hyperactive and bouncing off the walls and can't sleep, just addressing that piece alone is going to improve things and help make it easier to manage. So um, the dairy piece is a big, uh, is a big nutritional piece. Um, and just on a more basic level, um, just eating consistently throughout the day. Um, that's another piece, especially as we get into the teen years, a lot of teenagers are eating very haphazardly. They may go long periods of time without eating and then they eat a whole bunch. So just helping them to be more consistent with that, particularly if they have ADHD, if they have autism spectrum, having consistent eating patterns can be helpful. So those are some of the basics there that I think are really important along with for kids with more severe ADHD or kids diagnosed on the autism spectrum. Um, 
if parents are willing, I will always run uh, blood work, run labs to look at um, nutrient levels because we just have uh, such a wealth of research showing uh, that we should be looking at things like iron level. We should be looking at vitamin D level, uh, B6 and B12, those kinds of things. And those are relatively simple things to correct if we find that those are issues because we can do supplementation for those, even if a child or a family isn't willing to change their diet. So those are some of the um, big levers that I, that I look at when I have kids with those diagnoses. So should a, a parent be looking to go and see a nutritionist? That's a really um, important question and it's a loaded question. Um, part of the problem in the field of nutrition is that a lot of states don't license um, nutritionists. Any, anybody can call themselves a nutritionist. Uh, some states license dietitians, but dietitians are not trained in the kinds of things we're talking about. So what I tell parents is you should seek out a professional who has training and experience in nutrition as it relates to these kinds of issues. A generic you know, nutritionist who, for example, specializes in weight loss, that, that's not going to be helpful for you with your child with brain-based needs. So you want to seek out a professional, and they may have different um, titles, you know, depending. Um, like I am a licensed psychologist. I'm also board certified nutrition. I'm both, but people know me as a psychologist. So, you know, you want to seek out people who have the experience and the training to help with children and to help with these particular issues. Not just, you know, if you ask your physician to refer you to the dietitian at the local, um, you know, hospital or healthcare center, very unlikely that that person is going to have the, the skills and the resources to help you. Given your experience, your observations, the research on how nutrition can impact behavior, how big an issue do you think misdiagnosis is outside of your clinic? I think misdiagnosis is a major issue um, all the way around. I'm, I'm a very strange clinical psychologist. The field of clinical psychology is is totally focused on diagnosing, you know, figuring out what is the diagnosis and then what's the treatment plan. I actually really dislike diagnoses. I dislike labels. I dislike that whole realm of things because I feel it so misses the mark of, of what we really should be looking at, which is what are the contributing factors? You know, I can have 10 children, line them all up here in my office. They could all have the same clinical diagnosis of ADHD, and yet they may each have different underlying factors and underlying causes for that. So them all having the same label is really not helpful from the standpoint of understanding what's going to be effective treatment-wise for them. So I do understand that labels uh, can build community for some people and some parents to feel like, okay, here's a community of people who also deal with these same things. I understand that in the realm of school, it can help, you know, categorize. But again, each person is so different. And I think where we get into misdiagnosis, there's, there's nowhere um, where this is more clear than the kids and the young adults that come into my practice and they have literally been given almost every psychiatric label out there. You know, parents will say, well, he's been diagnosed with ADHD and autism spectrum disorder and OCD and bipolar and oppositional defiant disorder and the list. And I say, okay, stop. Let me just 
that doesn't tell me anything about who your child is. Let's just dig into who your child is and take all those labels off. But th those are great examples of how these are all just subjectively applied labels that if we don't take the time to dig into understanding what's driving these symptoms, we miss the mark with that. And I think there are a lot of children and adults who are walking around who have been given various diagnostic labels um, and none of them may apply. It may really be something physiological or something else going on that has not been identified that needs to be, that needs to be treated. So I, it, it's such a, it's such a difficult area, you know, and, and for me as a clinical psychologist operating in the realm of, you know, mental health, it's a touchy area. Um, but the thing that convinces me most that labels tend to be unhelpful for people are the, the older teens and the young adults who I see, who they come in and it's like these years of being saddled with this diagnosis, these years of being told, this is what's wrong with you. This is who you are. Um, it has a really damaging effect on them. And they say, well, I can't do anything. You know, I've, I've had depression and anxiety and ADHD my whole life. I can't function well. Like this is who I am. And a significant part of the work that I do with them is helping them to understand who they are apart from all that. Those things are not you. Those are names that have been given to things you've experienced, but those aren't you. They don't define you. And most importantly, they don't define your future or where you're headed in life. But I think this, this drive to label kids so that we can give them treatment A or treatment B or treatment C and then quote unquote fix, you know, that I, I, I don't think it works out well. And I think we miss the very human component of all of this, which is every single one of us exists on a spectrum of strengths and challenges. And recognizing the uniqueness of that, recognizing the unique gifts and potential that every single child has, and focusing there and not getting so locked into this idea of, of what's wrong and what name do we need to give it. Regarding COVID-19, it is still a virus we don't know too much about. What do you see as the main effects emotionally and behaviorally that this virus is having on young children, not just those who sadly catch it despite being less likely to, but all of the children who are living through this bizarre era? Yeah, you know, the big things that we're seeing are increase in anxiety and just distress in general around all of the changes and all of the continued uncertainty. You know, uncertainty is the driver of anxiety in all of us. Why do we experience anxiety? It's because we're experiencing the sense of uncertainty that we don't know how to manage. Well, we've all been now for nine months or so, um, you know, in a period of massive uncertainty and that wears on us. And I think that's wearing on kids as well. Um, just the, the constantly not knowing, is school going to be open? Is it going to be shut down? You know, when is this going to end? Can I, you know, see my grandparents? You know, it's, it's stressful. Um, the way, the thing that's buffering that though for children is how their parents are handling it. So I look at the increased anxiety and distress among children as really a reflection of how the key adults in their life are handling it. If their parents are, you know, being open about it, handling it pretty well, keeping their feet under them, 
and moving forward, then those kids are not experiencing as much anxiety and distress. Parents who are feeling very distressed, very anxious, very, you know, whatever, um, those kids are struggling more. And I'm not blaming that on parents. I'm just saying that's how the parent-child dynamic works. So that's the one piece. The second piece of um, major fallout that we're seeing for children is related to the extreme increase in time spent on electronic devices. We've known for a long time that as screen time has increased for children and teens, uh, so have challenges with learning, behavior, mood, anxiety, all of that. Well, now we've put kids in an environment where for many of them, at least still at this point, all of their school is online, um, their time with connecting with friends, everything is online. And while that certainly has been wonderful from the standpoint of them being able to continue their schooling, their relationships, all of that, the downside of it is that if parents and teachers and other key adults are not being conscientious about finding some balance there, the just constant use of screens and technology is having a negative effect. So, you know, those are the two um, big pieces. The, the silver lining, though, and the message that I really want to give parents is there's nothing about this situation that needs to cause irreparable harm. There, e even when we look at children's education or friendships or whatever, kids really by and large are resilient. There is nothing about this that is destined to you know, create any kind of devastating long-term effect. So I think that that is really important for parents to know. Um, but a big part of that is how we approach it with them. Um, and if we approach it from the standpoint of, yep, this is frustrating, this is anxiety provoking, this is hard, and we can get through this, we can build our resilience, we can handle these hard things, that messaging is key to helping kids develop resilience and manage their anxiety, not just now, but as they move forward. So I think that the pandemic has provided us some opportunities if we're willing to take them, um, opportunities to help teach some important skills and some important lessons um, to kids. And, and I don't say that to minimize the very real and significant challenges that some families are facing with things like job loss and food insecurity and death of a family member. I'm not minimizing that in any way. Those are very real challenges. And at the same time, when we go through these really intense challenging times in our lives, especially with children, it is an opportunity to help them develop the kind of mindset, the kind of tangible coping skills, the kinds of problem solving behaviors that they need for successful independent adult life. So if we choose to accept that opportunity, um, that's the piece that I think there really is some value in. And, and then knowing that this isn't going to be permanent and that kids aren't going to be irreparably damaged from it. And what are the most effective ways that you have seen to stop a child from overusing their iPad and other electronic devices? Oh, we could do a whole episode just on that. Um, I think that it starts with communication. It starts with parents and kids sitting down and parents uh, communicating clearly what they're observing and what their concerns are. Um, even something, and we talk about this in my house, I have uh, teenagers and young adults, even something as basic as, you know, I noticed that you were on the computer for most of the day yesterday between school and, you know, other activities. And, you know, 
felt to me like you were a lot grumpier, like you didn't sleep as well, like just drawing those connections and saying, I'm concerned about that. How can we find more balance? So having those conversations and then parents being willing to implement um, some limits on that. And that can look like very basic, consistent things like we sit down to eat meals together without our devices. Devices don't belong at the dinner table, parents included, um, because our modeling is key. Nothing that we tell our kids with electronics use and screen time is going to matter nearly as much as what they see us doing. So we need to be a model of coming to a mealtime with our devices put away. We need to be a model of, wow, I've been working here at the computer for a while. Let me stand up and stretch. I need to take a break and walk around and do something different. They need to see us going to bed at night without our device in bed with us. They need to see our modeling of that. And then us putting those um, boundaries in place and saying, you know, in our house, we don't have devices at the dinner table. In this house, kids don't bring devices in the bedroom at night, both for safety as well as, you know, for health and wellness. You know, in our house, we have, um, you know, we use parental controls to uh, make sure that children are not accessing content that's dangerous or inappropriate for them. You know, whatever those things are that are going to be important to happen in that family's home for parents to have the courage to manage their own anxiety around their children being distressed or upset about that and saying, no, my job as a parent is to create an environment where you can be healthy and thrive. And that means putting some limits uh, around this. So those very practical kinds of things, but it really does start with number one, parents being aware of the problems with overuse of devices. And then number two, being willing to manage their own anxiety around making some changes to how that's gonna work. Nicole, you have been amazing. Health Hackers listeners, I will post links to Dr. Nicole's website, her brilliant podcast, which is called The Better Behavior Show, and her social media accounts in the summary text that goes with this podcast and video. Thank you so much, Dr. Birkins. Thank you for having me, it's been great. Goodbye everyone, see you next time.